All right, well, good morning, Trace. How are we doing this morning? Everybody excited to be here on this beautiful spring morning? Is it spring? Is it spring in Colorado? I don't know. I don't know. I hope it is. I hope it's here to stay. Hey, my name's Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here. I want to say welcome to every one of you in this room. I want to say welcome to those who may be watching online later. But I want to give a special shout out to all the mamas in the room. So can we welcome all the moms in here today on this Mother's Day? Whether you're a new mom, an expecting mom, an adopted mom, a grandmama, or just a regular mom, if there is such thing as a regular mom, I don't know if there is, but we celebrate you today. But I've made it a, um, just a note every year to also address some other people in the room. And so let me do that really quick, because I think it's important. Um, we know that this day isn't happy for everyone. Uh, we know that maybe some of you grew up with moms that maybe weren't loving and weren't kind. We know that some of you maybe lost a mom here recently, and so this day is going to elicit some different emotions for you. We know some of you may uh, have been trying to become a mom. Everything inside of you wants to be a mom, but for whatever reason, it hasn't happened for you yet. And so I just want to take a moment and let you know that we're thinking of you today as well. Well, guys, today we do continue in this series called Asking for a Friend, and we all have questions, don't we? I mean, we all have questions, and the reason we titled it this way is because sometimes the questions that we have are questions that we don't, other, we don't want other people to know that we have those questions, but nonetheless, we have those questions. Maybe this would be an example. Like, what do people in China call their really nice, like, dishware, like, what, or, or plates? And like, what, like, I'm not asking for me, I'm asking for a friend. Or in light of Mother's Day, what, what do, or when is it okay for me to be a stay-at-home mom if I don't have any kids, right? I'm not asking for me, I'm asking for a friend. Well, of course, your questions had a lot more depth to them than those, and as we read through those questions, we realized really quick that there's going to be a lot of value, we believe, that's going to come out of this series for those of you that uh, presented many really important questions, things that you are curious about, things that you would like a more deeper understanding on, and so we're going to tackle those over the next few weeks. But let me be clear about something. We didn't do this so we could stand up here and act like we have all the answers. That's not what this series is about, because we don't. We don't have all the answers, but we do worship a God who does. So all we can do is devote ourselves to the study of his word in order to hopefully bring some clarity to the questions that we have in life. I mean, that's our direction. And by doing that, we might not like end up hearing all the answers that we would hope to hear, but nonetheless, we learn about the heart of God, and we keep Jesus out in front of us, and for what it's worth, friends, if you're a follower of Christ, and we know that not everybody in here is a follower of Jesus, and you're always welcome to come just as you are, but for those of us that are followers of Jesus, this should always be our target, to keep Jesus out in front of us and keep our eyes fixed on him, because if not, we'll fall into the current of this culture, and we start leaning on our own opinions and our own preferences and our own life experiences more then we lean on the truth of God, and it happens more quickly, quickly than you think. And even sometimes when we're studying God's word and we're hoping to find clarity and find answers, sometimes we still walk away with uncertainty, don't we? Sometimes we still walk away with ambiguity. And for what it's worth, I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. And that actually leads me to our conversation and our topic for, for today. Per many of your questions, today we're going to be looking at the subject of theology, and more specifically, how God operates. 
And we're going to be looking at two major camps within the theological realm. And again, this was per many of your questions that we're seeking out a deeper understanding of how, do, like, how does God interact with us and how do we interact with God when it comes to this idea of predestination versus free will. In other words, how much do our choices matter if God already knows what's going to happen? Can we lose our salvation? Can our prayers change the mind of God? Has God predetermined everyone who's going to heaven and hell? How are we saved? Now, I'm not going to be able to answer all of these questions today, so we're going to do more of a, a flyover, a 10,000-foot flyover of this deeper theological discussion. But before we get to that, I'd like to do something with you that is really speaking for more of a practical place, really a personal perspective, if you will, when it comes to me and kind of how I approach ministry. Some of you may appreciate this. Some of you may get on the other end of this and realize that this is not the church for you. But nonetheless, I think it'll give you clarity. I'm not the kind of pastor. I'm not the kind of pastor that wants to sit around and talk about deep theological uh, conflict all the time and even deep theological subjects. Now, this may be somewhat of an overgeneralization, but being in ministry as long as I have, I have been in those camps. I have been around those people that just want to spend a lot of time debating theology. And even though, again, this is an overgeneralization to some extent, I would say that many of them, if not most of them, are subject to something that I call point-proving theology. In other words, it becomes a lot more about proving a point than it is about growing in the likeness of Jesus. Anybody that has ever been in a part of a Bible college or a seminary would tell you that this is a, this is a very real thing here. Theological, intellectual arrogance. Sometimes, and I've said this in many different circles, sometimes I think the most beneficial thing that some people can do, listen to me because I think this is probably going to make you think a little bit, sometimes the most beneficial thing that I think some people could do is to forget everything that they've ever learned about the Bible and about God and start all over. And maybe this time approach their faith like a child. Because I do believe it's more simple than we make it out to be sometimes. Now, I'm not saying that you know, deeper theological discussions aren't important, because I absolutely believe they are. Theology simply means the study of God. And you've heard me say this before, and I'll say it again. I think we should study the Word of God, and for obvious reasons, maybe, but I think maybe if we were to boil it down to its basic form, the reason we study the Word of God is so that we can get to know God, so that we can show God, that we get to learn about the life of Jesus so that we can live out the life of Jesus. I'd have to agree with my friend Bob Goff when he says, good theology is loving people the way that Jesus did. I know sometimes we want to make it more complicated than that, but I truly believe it's not. Friends, my objective every week is not to stand up here and try to woo you with my biblical knowledge. And for what it's worth, if I wanted to, I could. I have a master's degree in biblical studies. And maybe you've been to those churches before. Maybe you've been to those churches where the pastor would preach these, <clears throat> excuse me, these incredibly deep sermons that were full of spiritual rhetoric, and people would leave saying, wow, that was so deep, and man, he was so smart. I don't have any idea what he was talking about, but it, it was still really deep. Here's what you need to know about me. I would rather be clear than to go deep. I would rather give you the simple 
basic principles of what it means to be a follower of Jesus and have you and encourage you live those out to, yes, teach a message with clarity, but also uh, being compelled to some extent, to want to live out our faith and not just learn information. To, yes, for the Spirit of God to convict you every Sunday that you come in here, not because he wants you to leave with any type of guilt or shame, but because he has more that he wants to accomplish in and through your life. And somewhere along the way, people have been misguided to think that going deeper, like going deeper is directly related to more information. That going deeper is directly related to how much we know. So let me pause here and remind you of this. Information has never been the destination. Information has never been the destination. Transformation is. Paul reminds us of this in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 when he says that knowledge, like when we just pursue knowledge and just wanting to know more so that we can use that point-proving theology and show other people what we know and win arguments and win debates, that will puff us up. But when we pursue love, as our main target, that that will actually build us up and it actually builds the people around us up as well. Guys, places like this were never meant to be intellectual institutions. They were never meant to be intellectual institutions. Places like this were supposed to remind us that we're a part of a movement, a movement that was meant to help people find and follow Jesus. And when that happens, I've seen that people actually begin to experience real life change. And one of the things I've noticed in my tenure of ministry is this. People that are experiencing that real life change, that life transform, those people become the most motivated to change others' lives. And yes, listen to me. Knowledge is an aspect of this. But if the information that we're learning isn't leading us to transformed lives, then knowledge may have become an idol in our lives. If you want to go deeper, Listen to me. If you want to go deeper, because some people come up to me, not all the time, but every now and then I'll have people come up to me, and I appreciate the sentiment. I really, really, really do. It's like, hey, we want to go deeper. And if you're truly wanting to go deeper, again, somewhere along the way, I've already said this, but we've been misguided to think going deeper automatically is intellectualism, that going deeper is automatically just learning more stuff. Here's what I've learned. If you want to go deeper, make yourself available for someone who is hurting. If you want to go deeper, serve in our children's ministry or our student ministry and truly invest your life in a kid that's not your own. If you want to go deeper, then become a mentor and help, one, help someone else understand what you already know about Jesus. You really don't have to learn anything else to even right now sit down with someone else and actually let them know what you already do. You maybe have heard us say this before in some circle around here. I don't care if you learn anything else until you share what you already know with someone else. I don't care if you learn anything else until you share what you already know with someone else. That's the gospel. If you want to go deeper, man, become a foster parent. But be careful that you don't get caught in this pursuit of knowledge, thinking that knowledge in and of itself, again, made this clear already, but I don't, I'm being redundant on purpose. Yes, knowledge is a part of it. Information should lead us to transformation, though. So be careful that going deeper isn't directly related to just learning more information. God kind of got my attention on this several years ago. I was on a flight, and I sat beside this young lady, and we struck up a conversation. It wasn't long before she asked me what I did for a living, and I never know how this is going to go, but I told her I'm a pastor. And so she immediately went into this rant about what she believed about God and different things that she thought about God. And, and so I'm listening, and I'm hearing it out, and she was way off base, and but I'm, I'm listening nonetheless, 
And then when she gets done, I said, you know, I appreciate where you're coming from, but I think you might be misguided a little bit. And so I quoted some scripture to her, several different scriptures, just started quoting some scripture to you. And when I got done, she said, see, that's the problem with you pastors. You're always quoting scripture. I, yeah, I guess we are. I guess that's what we do. That's part of our life. But, <laughs> but in the same breath, God also kind of woke me up to something. Aaron, is it just about quoting information? Is that what my word is? <laughs> is it just about regurgitating things that you're learning? Or is this supposed to be about more? Aaron, are you just sharing information or are you sharing the transformation of what I'm doing in your life by putting your faith and trust in my son Jesus? That's what I want you to talk about. And yes, of course, we're backing all of that up with Scripture. If we don't, then we're left to our own personal opinions that it will misguide us. So let me end this rant by saying this. Should you have sound doctrine? Absolutely. And for what it's worth, we're putting together a new believers class to help people develop a strong theological foundation for their faith moving forward. But not the kind of foundation that is steeped in heavy debate and spiritual intellectualism. We want to help people build a theological foundation that will help them live out the gospel better, that will help them love others better, and that ultimately will lead them to a life transformed. So let me conclude this little section here, my little rant. Sound doctrine is essential. It really is. But spiritual intellectualism can be dangerous. Now, with all of that being said, that may be the longest introduction that I've ever done leading us up to this particular conversation, looking at the two biggest camps of theological debate. You have what's called Reformed theology, and then you have what's called free will theology. Maybe you've heard them uh, termed as Calvinism and Arminianism. And for what it's worth, I believe both of these camps are both right and they're both wrong. And to take either of them to their extreme positions is dangerous because they're both trying to predict precisely how God works. And for what it's worth, I would encourage you not to listen to anyone who's ever trying to communicate that they know exactly how God works. Paul also warns us about this. Let me read a couple passages to you. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul says, For who knows a person's thoughts except their own spirit within them? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. In Romans chapter 11, Paul says, Oh, how great are God's riches in wisdom and knowledge! How impossible it is for us to understand His decisions! in his ways. So with that being said, let's begin by looking at Reformed theology, also known as Calvinism. And Calvinism teaches that because of God's sovereignty, in other words, his supreme power and his supreme authority over all, everything has already been determined. Everything has been predestined. In other words, he's already chosen those who are going to get saved and those who aren't. You really have no choice in the matter. To quote from the 16th century theologian himself, John Calvin, which is where we get Calvinism, he says this, God arranges all things by his sovereign counsel in such a way that individuals are, both bo or individuals are born who are doomed from the womb to certain death and are to glorify him by their destruction. Great story to read your kids at night before you put them to bed. Um, yeah. Here are a few scriptures that communicate the position of predestination or what's called the elect or what's called Calvinism. Now, let me, before I read this passage, let me communicate that we've got people that come to this church that would consider themselves more reformed in theology and 
Uh, there's people all over the map. There's people all over the map. So even though they would consider themselves to be Reformed, you have what's called the five points of Calvinism. They may not agree with all five points. I'll share those five points with you here in just a few moments. Ephesians chapter 1, uh, we read a passage that is used oftentimes in the Calvinism approach of God. Even as he chose us, now I want you to pay attention to the pronouns here because I'm going to show you a hiccup in Calvinism a little bit too. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Christ Jesus, according to the purpose of his will. Jump down to verse 11, and we read, In him we, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So that we who were the first, now this is very interesting. This is where there's a little bit of a hiccup in Calvinism when they use this particular passage. So we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. And then in verse 13, he transitions and says, in him, you also. So on this side of Ephesians 1, we have him talking about predestination, and Calvinism would teach that this position is saying that God has already predestined all of those who are going to be saved, and he's chosen, and you don't have a choice in it. There's nothing you can do to obtain salvation. God's already chosen it. It's up to him. It's not up to you. But when you read this passage in its entirety, you'll notice that there's some language here that sounds like Paul may be talking about that there was a certain group of people maybe in a certain period of time, that God predestined. And these people would have been guys like Paul and the apostles because God knew exactly how he wanted this particular time frame to go down. Because once Paul goes through this and he says, we were, we were the first, right, in verse 12, so that we who were the first, in other words, God chose us for a certain uh, time frame to accomplish a certain purpose, to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. And then in 13, don't miss it, in him you also. So now he's saying that there's also people outside of this predestined group of folks. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Romans 8 verse 29 is another passage, and there's several passages. I'm not going to be able to read both or all of them on both sides. Romans 8, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, this idea of the five points of Calvinism is to the very extreme. And so I'll tell you uh, what these five points of Calvinism are. And it's also known through the acronym of TULIP. It's these five things. Total depravity unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and the preservation of saints. Let me quickly just describe each of these points very quickly. Total depravity. You are absolutely nothing, and you can do nothing without God. You're nothing. You really have no choice in anything. God has already got it figured out. Unconditional election. God chooses to give some people eternal life, and others he does not. Again, we have no choice in it. And the people he chooses, they didn't do anything to earn it. So he didn't give them salvation. He didn't give them his grace because they were more awesome than you. The third one, limited atonement. Jesus didn't die for everyone. He only died for some. And again, based on the preaching that we've done around here, you probably know we have conflict with these positions. 
irresistible grace. When God decides to give you his grace, there's nothing you can do to avoid receiving it. There's nothing you can do to earn it. You don't repent, you don't choose it, or anything like that. He simply gives it to you, and you can't even avoid it. It's irresistible. And then the preservation of saints. Once saved, always saved. No possibility of falling away. Can I be transparent with you today? I think sometimes you guys would appreciate this when I give you my position. I don't know where I'm at on this. There's been certain parts of my life where I would, on this particular part, the preservation of saints, once saved, always saved. There's been certain parts of my life where I would say, yeah, once saved, always saved. You can't walk away from your salvation. Other parts of my life where I've said, no, I think you can walk away from your salvation. And so where I'm at right now is this, which doesn't really make any sense. But the way that I've described my theology, and I'll do this later, is that I move in and out of certain doctrines that have been taught within the church that have really actually decent argument on both sides. And so instead of getting steeped in spiritual intellectualism, I've just decided to move in and out of them, understanding that I can't possibly know the mind of God, and I'm okay with that. Now, one of my main issues with Calvinism is this. If only people pre-chosen by God can be saved, and if there is a hell, then that means God has created people knowing that no matter how much they want it, no matter how much they want it, can't have a relationship with him. They can't have it. And so they're going to go to hell for all eternity. Guys, I personally feel this is a complete contradiction to the idea of a loving God who sent his son Jesus to come to save, to seek and save the lost, as we read in Luke chapter 19. So I guess if you want to get rid of the mission of Jesus altogether, that he came to seek and save all those who were lost, then you could probably allow this theology to work for you. Now, our second theological position is called free will or Arminianism. This position states that you do have a choice and that the gift of grace is available for all men and women who choose to repent and believe. There are also several verses that back up this position. I'll read to you just a couple. In John 3.16, very popular passage, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever, everybody say whoever, whoever, not just those he predestined, not the elect, but whoever believes in him shall not perish or have eternal life. In 2 Peter chapter 3, we read, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promises, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone, say anyone, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone, everybody say everyone, but everyone to come to repentance. In Luke chapter 5, we read this, Jesus answered them, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. You know who sinners are? Everyone. Everyone. In Acts chapter 2, oh, this will be the last one I read. Peter said to them, this is when the Holy Spirit comes down, the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. And, <clears throat> and Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, everyone. Everybody say everyone. Every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This was an all-inclusive, all-inclusive invitation. All-inclusive. Now, throughout these verses, we see a choice. And we see a responsibility on our part to move towards God and to do something that the Bible calls repentance. In Calvinism, there is even no, there's no need to repent. God's going to give you his grace if he decides to give you his grace. But my problem with this theological position and in in this free will and this Arminian position 
is that they dismiss predestination altogether. If you go to its nth degree, if it's extreme. And I think, I think predestination and God electing certain people for certain time frames and for certain things that he wanted to accomplish a certain way, I think you can't argue it in Scripture. I think we can't argue against certain things being predestined. And so I'm okay to live in both camps. So the points of tension around these theological arguments sounds something like this, but how can we truly have a choice if God already knows everything and if God is sovereign? Why should we pray and ask for things if God already knows what we're going to ask for? Why is it so important for us to reach the ends of the earth with the good news of Jesus if God already knows who will accept him and who will reject him? Ready? I'm going to give you the answer, and this is incredibly deep. Because he told us to. Because he told us to. If you need more answers than that, I would caution you to be careful that you're not seeking knowledge above the simplicity of living out the gospel. Should you want to seek out deeper understanding? Absolutely. Friends, I believe God has allowed us to be a part of his divine plan, but we have a choice in whether or not we choose to be a part of it. I believe God is completely in control but we are completely responsible. I believe God has predestined certain things to happen, but I also believe everyone has an opportunity to receive the forgiveness of Jesus through repentance. And so my theology looks like this. I call it moving theology, and I'm okay with it. And this is my position, and I'm not gonna spend or waste any more time than I need to in learning what I need to know. How much do I need to know before I can live out the gospel? I think... <clears throat> I think the gospel is simple, but it might not be easy, right? I think the message of the gospel is simple and living out what it looks like to live the life of Jesus, but that doesn't mean it's easy because we're fighting ourselves. We're fighting the selfishness desire that each one of us has to live our own life. And so I think if you want to fight a battle, don't fight a theological battle the rest of your life. Fight the battle that is standing in your way in the mirror every morning. You are, the, you are going to be the main objective in living out the simplicity of the gospel, and that's what makes it not easy. So friends, here's where I live. I'm not telling you where you're supposed to live, but here's where I live, and here's what I would tell you. I don't like labels. And so we're not a Reformed church. We're not a charismatic church. We're not an Arminian church. If anything, we are a gospel-centered church that will always focus our main efforts in helping people find and follow Jesus. And so that's where we're going to live. And if I could help you with your theological position, if I could help you to build a theological foundation this morning, here's what I would do, and it would be these four questions. Number one, who is Jesus? And it's important that you get that one right, because there are some pseudo-Christian faiths that believe Jesus is something that we don't say that he is, and there's probably a series coming in the fall where we're going to talk more about that. I'm not going to get into that right now. But who is Jesus? That's critical. That's essential. The second question, what did he say? In other words, we do need to read God's word. We need to get into the gospels and look at the life of Christ specifically. What did he say? Then what should I do with what he said? And then the fourth question, are the answers to the first three questions leading me to love people better? Because if the answers to those first three questions aren't leaving me to leading me to love people better, then you've answered those first three questions incorrectly. If you want to build a foundation for your faith and your theology, I would encourage you to start there. Guys, we will never teach anything in this church that leads to exclusivity. Can I say it again? We're never going to teach anything in this church that leads to exclusivity. 
because through Jesus, everyone has an opportunity to repent and be included in the kingdom that he came to establish. And if you want to be in, if you want to be in, it doesn't matter what you know right now. And it doesn't matter what you don't know right now. At this point, all you need to know is that Jesus wants you to be in. And he made a path available for you to be in through what he did on the cross. I want to lead us into a time of response right now. And I'm going to invite a friend of mine to come up and do something called a spoken word that's going to lead us into our response time a little bit differently today. But for those of you that are new with us, let me explain what we do. Every week we celebrate with something called communion. And we remember that through the cross that there is an all-inclusive invitation that anyone who wants to have faith in Christ, anyone, can do so. By repenting, which truly just means to turn and go the other direction and walk in the direction of Jesus, to hand your life over to him, allow him to be the leader and Lord of your life. And so what we do at these four stations is we take a cracker that represents the broken body of Jesus and we dip it in a cup of juice that represents his blood. And we remember, we remember that the grace of God made available through the cross is for everyone. It's for everyone. If you've never made that decision, then I would encourage you to come talk to me. I'm going to stand over here by the sign that said, I said yes to Jesus. Uh, during the last service, we had a young lady come up and give her life to Jesus for the first time. There's not a better decision you can make. Than, yeah, you can clap. <clears throat> so I'm going to pray for us, and uh, I'm going to allow Alana to lead us into the response time a little bit differently today. Father, thank you for who you are. Father, thank you for what you have done and what you made available through us, to us, through the cross. Father, we repent and we ask for forgiveness when we've made information the destination. We repent for getting caught up in spiritual intellectualism at times and sometimes being in a conversation that kind of sounds like it's supposed to be about you, but it really isn't about you. It's about us looking smart. It's about us proving a point. It's about us showing that we have more knowledge than the next person, whatever that looks like. Father, would you just convict us this morning? Would you show us the error of our ways? Would you show us where we've gotten sidetracked when it comes to our pursuit of you? And yes, Lord, we continue to want to get, dig deeper into your word. We want to know you better so we can show you better. We want to learn about the life of Jesus so we can better, better represent and live out the life of Jesus. So show us the proper place that knowledge and wisdom has in our life. We love you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I have wanted to be in. Be in the loop, be in the in crowd among the known and the proud, not to be left out, but to be allowed to be in. Where the clothes that are in style be a trendsetter and versatile, just the right cut and the perfect smile to be in. To be known as someone who has much, is always on the latest and greatest stuff and such to be in. But I have been aggravated Frustrated, underappreciated, slated in someone who is underrated. Unimportant, unknown, unseen, average, mediocre, routine, beneath, below, beyond a chance, insignificant. But Jesus liked people like me. Took notice of a blind man and made him see. Saw a locked up kid and set him free. Told Zacchaeus, come out of that tree. 
felt it when a desperate woman touched his cloak, knelt beside a dead girl, and up she woke, hung out with the down, the out, and the broke, offered hope to the forgotten with just the words that he spoke. Touched a man with leprosy who others would mock. Forgave a woman at a well who had become a laughing stock. Came to the lowly shepherds who smelt of their flock. In the company of sinners is where Jesus would eat. He made followers out of men who were crooked treats. He defended an adulterer and made her adulterers retreat. He let the tears of a prostitute anoint his feet. And suddenly, dramatically, miraculously, and undeniably, they were in. In his story, in his truth, in his grace, in his purpose, in his eyes, they were someone great. And I, I have wanted to be in. And since the day I met with him, he took all that I had been. All my fear, my shame, my sin, and changed my life by letting me in. Our God is greater than the past that drowned me, stronger than the chains that bound me, higher than the shame that found me, and there is no one like him. None like him. Feel free to respond. <laughs> 